Hey, this is Matt. And just before we get to the show today on back pain, I wanted to make a quick announcement. This Sunday, October 1st, Dr. Stuart Ken Brigham and myself will be jumping on Facebook Live to do a recap episode, talking about some of our recent episodes, and also answering listener questions live. So if you want to jump on Facebook, please follow our Facebook page. You can ask us questions live, and we'll do our best to answer them during that recap episode. And then we will be later posting that to YouTube and also to our our normal podcast feed on iTunes and everywhere else you can get your podcasts. So that's something new that we're going to be trying out. We definitely want your feedback and we want your questions. So please watch us this Sunday, October 1st at 8.30 p.m. And now for your regularly scheduled program. back to the curbsiders okay the internal the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge wonderful i'm dr matthew frank watto here with several co-hosts uh you want to introduce yourselves Stuart, paul shreya Hello. i mean technically you just introduced us matt i i don't <laughs> but that's that's i'm still paul williams okay yep ladies first <laughs> So kind, gentle people. Hi, my name's Dr. Shreya Trevetti. And I'm still Stuart, Stuart Brigham. And we just want to let you know that the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be used to interpret, should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, entity aside from possibly Cash Like Memorial Hospital and its affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. Uh, there aren't. Pretty much, we are responsible. We we are responsible. If you screw up, you should always do your homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, have we fulfilled our legal obligations? I do not know. <laughs> okay, great. Neither do I. But now I'm scared that we have legal obligations. Shreya, do you know anything about law? Nope. That is a uh, one one other brain hole that I am still trying to ah, trying to need, fill. We're going to start a medical legal podcast. Actually, I have no interest in doing that. But if any of our listeners want to, no, I think it's a good idea that we planted the seed for lawsuits at the beginning. So it's good to actually <laughs> sort of get people thinking about it before we start broadcasting. Ooh. So. Mm. Let's distract them with some listener feedback, Stuart. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, I'm looking at the wrong script. I should probably look at the right one. So. Give me a second. This is this is gold. There we go. As Paul's mentioned several times, people love when you uh, when you give them dead air. Yes, yes, I'm sure they do. Uh, so here's the uh, listener feedback from the listener who gave us feedback. Okay, hello. I am an oncology pharmacist working at a community hospital in rural Colorado, and have enjoyed listening to your podcast during my commute. It is both entertaining and informative. I wanted to comment on the polypharmacy episode that recently aired regarding the question about a resource for supplements and herbs. The memorial, I suspect he meant memorial, the memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center publishes a comprehensive and evidence-supported database that offers information for both patients and healthcare providers, professionals, I'm sorry, professionals, including 
proposed mechanism of, a- of action purported uses adverse effects and drug herb slash disease herb interactions. They provide links to references as well. I've used it extensively in my practice. We have a lot of avid supplement users here in Colorado. Of course they do. <laughs> to ensure <laughs> to ensure that the supplement is not going to interact with chemotherapy or supportive. You know, just look up what pot is interacting with. Okay. You'd be surprised how many herbs have CYP interactions. I probably wouldn't. Anyway, here is link. <laughs> they also have an app about herbs, that is. Well, this I, I'm actually excited to try out this resource because this is something uh, when we were doing our polypharmacy episodes, we, we kind of were at a standstill. We didn't have an answer for this one. So this will this will be useful. So thank you. Uh, are we saying? Alexander. Alexander. Thank you, Alexander from Colorado. All right. So the, uh, some quick announcements. Number one, we will be opening a uh, t-shirt store on Cafe Press, not to make money, at least not for us. We, we will do- be donating all the proceeds to th- from that to charity. We've just had, believe it or not, a couple people requesting t-shirts. And uh, if any listeners want to make some t-shirts referencing the show, that would be hilarious. And you can send those to us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Also, our, we recently closed our application cycle for, to become a curbsiders correspondent. Uh, we got a lot of applications, more than we were expecting, and we're kind of overwhelmed. So if you weren't selected this time, uh, please apply again in the future. We're going to see how it goes. And please give us feedback on our, all of our new correspondents, uh, Shreya being one of them. Lots of good constructive feedback. <laughs> yeah, we've already been getting lots of uh, hate mail towards Shreya, so please uh, be gentle. I feel like I've been face. pretty clear on the record that I'm not a fan of this increasing the bench of competent correspondents. <laughs> like I've even back to your endocrinology friend whose name shall not be mentioned. I just I do not approve of any of this. Mm. Just putting it out there for the public consumption. Yeah, well, we'll see how it goes, Paul. I mean, I uh, you know I didn't I didn't promise anyone permanent employment. So, but thank you to everyone who applied Paul. and has started to contribute. Now, guys, uh, what do you say we do some guys and girl? What do you say we do picks of the week? I can't wait to hear the music if I can talk. <laughs> I want the music. <laughs> mm. That joke never gets old. <laughs> Shreya, would you I like... I to differ. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, have you listened to music yet? Have you actually listened to any of these podcasts yet? I've, I have not, um, but I, I keep hearing good things. The buzz, <laughs> the buzz is big, guys. <laughs> I agree. This is my favorite music part, too. <laughs> Shreya, would you like to start with with a pick of the week? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's another podcast. It's called Side Hustle Nation. And their tagline is, because your nine to five makes you a living, but your five to nine makes you feel alive. Mm. And so they interview various entrepreneurs from all different walks of life and how they turn their side hobbies or hustles into now their careers. And it's truly inspiring to like hear their stories, their strategies they use to like overcome their obstacles and and also their productivity tips, which I really like. Um, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of scheduling and time for inspiration, like literally scheduling and time for inspiration. And yes. that for me is a place for inspiration. So I wanted to pass that along to our, our listeners. Good recommendation. I can say that this, this podcast for me is kind of the uh, side hustle, the, my five to nine or yeah, my five to nine. So it is, it is good. I'd recommend finding one if you uh, don't have a, a side project that you're working on. It can definitely make things better in some ways. Busier, but uh, better. <laughs> Paul, what's your pick of the week? 
Oh, again, nothing productive or inspiring. I think I'm going to recommend, um, there's actually a brand spanking new album out from one of my favorite bands. They used to be Death From Above 1979, but that was unwieldy, so they shortened it to Death From Above. Um, <laughs> and there's this Canadian punk rock slash kind of dance. I think I may have recommended another one of their albums on an earlier show, but the new album, um, Outrages Now, just came out, I think, last week. And it is spectacular and worth listening to the three people who actually follow up on this recommendation. Maybe one of them may actually like it. If you do that. Um, I promise 0.05% of our, our listenership will really, uh, really enjoy it. Thank you, Paul. I'm going to go next with my pick of the week. It actually relates to this episode. Uh, we talk a little bit about wellness with Dr. Miles and something that we also talk about on the show is using YouTube videos to give patients uh, exercise outlets, things like yoga or there's all sorts of exercise and uh, therapy resources on YouTube. So that is a quick way that I found to fit in like 15 or 20 minutes of exercise. But my pick of the week that I'd like to recommend is a a jump rope that I re- recently purchased. It was about $10. It's a speed jump rope. It's called this Pro Circle Speed Jump Rope. And I find that five or 10 minutes of jump rope uh, looks really cool if you are, are a fan of Rocky. And also... Uh, feels awesome afterwards. So I would highly recommend jumping rope and uh, doing some exercise on YouTube. Doesn't take very long. All right, and by uh, my masterful deduction skills, uh, I'm I'm last. So my pick of the week is actually a speech by Simon Sinek. You can search for this one on Google or not on Google on YouTube by searching for Simon Sinek. Nobody wins, and it goes over some of the marketplace uh, hypothesis about how corporate structure should work uh, versus how it currently works. So it currently works off of uh, different theories that evolved out of the 70s and were developed in a time of just significant boom within the the economy and unfortunately don't apply uh, very well to the millennials and leave them feeling kind of cut off and disconnected from the workplace. So it, it helps to kind of give some kind of a, a framework for how to improve the corporate structure and the climate and allows and gives gives space to, to leaders to, to, to allow them to allow their charges, those underneath them, to grow and mature. Sounds good. Sounds very applicable to my job working with millennials on a daily basis on wards. Where's the cutoff for millennial? Like, uh, I believe it's it's 1982 technically. So technically, I'm a millennial, but I right. uh, I, I I do not self identify as a millennial, which I think is my right. right. <laughs> I feel like once someone becomes an attending, they're like, oh, millennial learners. Like, is that yeah. the, is that the cutoff? No, no, no. So 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 1984 is what some places. It, well, it, yeah. The the thing is, so so Shreya. Here's a question for you. Do you enjoy lectures where they're droning on and droning on, or do you enjoy lectures where where they break it up and have pictures here and there and maybe a few words on the slide and then explain to you and then interact? Yes, so you are a millennial. Totally the latter. But I like that too. Am I a millennial? You are a millennial too. (laughs) Apparently, it's it's the millennials that that enjoy that engagement. But then again, I think it's probably just a better learning theory in, in the first place. I'm going to say, uh, yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that. I think the millennials are on to something. They're, they're rebelling against boring learning. I'm, I'm fully on board. So if that's what a millennial means, then I'm, I'm all for it. I wonder what the generation is going to be called after the millennials. Post-millennials? <laughs> We're not going to make it that long as a species. <laughs> millennial. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stop the millennials. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should probably very quickly introduce the show. Uh, and uh, Shreya, did you want to say anything about back pain before we get started? Why why you wanted to do this episode? 
Yeah, I am pumped to talk about back pain. I think it's so common and can really affect someone's quality of life and to do it well can be really important. And something I think I learned the hard way, I used to kind of bookmark it. Oh, oh, your back pain, we can address that next visit. Let me talk about your uncontrolled diabetes. Let me talk about your fatty liver disease that we got to, you know, get uh, better. But if you're not addressing their pain, everything else is not going to follow through. So um, I think it's a really important topic to know how to do well. I think that's a great point. Mm. Our guest is Dr. Chris Miles. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and Wake Forest Baptist Health. He serves as the associate program director for the Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship and is the medical director of athletics for Wake Forest University. He is active in education and research, especially in the area of sports-related concussion, behavioral health, and athlete wellness. Speaking with Dr. Miles was an absolute pleasure. There's a lot of great clinical pearls here, both on physical exam and treatment of back pain, and I hope you will all enjoy it. Matt, Matt, just go to the interview. I'm holding you back. <laughs> Terrible. I nope, I stand corrected. I could not hate that more. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with Dr. Shreya, is it Paresh Trivedi? Oh, yes, you got it. Nailed it. Uh, Shreya, great middle name, got to say. Love it. It is, uh, it's my dad's name for those that don't know. Indian culture, the girls take on their father's name. And then when they're married, they take on their husband's name. So people are like, oh, Paresh, is that a girl's name? What? I'm like, no, it's, it's my dad. Wait, so you're going you're gonna to have to change your middle name again when you get married? Yeah, middle and last name. Can you believe it? I, I think I'm just going to protest. Yeah, you should. You're you're a strong woman. It's it's the '90s. It's hammer time or whatever. <laughs> you know, you should you can do it. Uh, I, I think I'm gonna. Shari Trivedi is is a nice ring. I'm going to keep it. You spent a long time building up, you know, that name. So, anyway, we should we should get uh, introduce our guest on the line with us is Dr. Chris Miles from Wake Forest. Hi, Chris. Good evening. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you about back pain. It's one of my favorite topics. I I, I wish that were true for our uh, residents and other learners. Sometimes we get lots of eye rolls when uh, the topic <laughs> back pain is on the chief complaint list. Well, when you when you do it well and you have a patient that like feels better and is so thankful, it's like okay, great. Yeah, they probably have a different type of patient in mind. I do want to jump back real quick. Chris, I feel like we left you out with the whole middle name discussion. Did you want to reveal your middle name? Do you have a middle name? I do have a middle name, and I would be happy to reveal it. It is Michael, named after my father. Excellent. Okay, Chris Michael Miles. That's pretty good. Michael Miles. Yeah, that sounds really beautiful. Rolls out the tongue. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the first question that we always start off with Chris, uh, for the audience to help get them so they can get to know you, how would you describe yourself in a one-liner, the kind that we use when we're talking about a patient in the hospital? Sure. I am a 38-year-old sports medicine and family medicine doctor, husband, a father of two, uh, who is driven and guided by my faith. Awesome. And Shreya, do you have any favorite questions you wanted to ask here? Yeah. So my, my favorite one is what is the best advice you've ever 
received as a learner or as a teacher or later on in your career? What's something you want to pass on? Sure. Uh, I think that if you approach every situation with humility, you can learn something from anyone, whether it's your patients or your nurses uh, or a colleague or a student. Um, approaching situations with humility and, and an open mind, you can you can learn something at any time and from anyone. My my grandmother and my aunt on my mom's side are both nurses, and before I went into residency, they're like, "Don't be that intern that thinks he knows everything." <laughs> These nurses have worked at this hospital. I wanted to I wanted to ask you another favorite question we have. What is a book that you've recently enjoyed that you can recommend? doesn't necessarily have to be related to medicine, but a book that you think could be helpful to people, even if it's just for escapism. Sure. Uh, I think uh, the one that I turned to, and it, it hasn't been all that recent. Um, it, it's been a couple years since I've read it most recently, but A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis um, and I think as uh, as physicians and, and, and as people who deal with grief, not only with our patients, but in our own lives, um, I think that that gives some great perspective. And I, I think C.S. Lewis is a, is a fantastic author, and, and with that topic especially. I have to check that sure. one out. Shrey, have you ever read that? I haven't. I, I've read some other books by C.S. Uh, by him, but not, uh, not that one. I will definitely check that out. But kind of on a similar note. Uh, one of our very loyal listeners, Helen, she's a fourth year med student. She wanted a little bit more input on mental health and wellness, which, you know, I think we can probably dedicate a whole show to that. But real quick, in terms of your own medical career, what's been your approach to mental health and wellness? So I I have the joy and pleasure of teaching the lecture, lecture on exercise as medicine. And uh, to the third year students that rotate through our family medicine clinic. And I think my biggest take home point for them is this lecture is not only about your patients, but about yourselves. And, and so I think for, for, for me, wellness is about being active, um, whatever that looks like, whether that's ballroom dancing or triathlons or anything in between, um, have something that's an outlet for you that is, that is physical fitness, physical activity. Um, and I think that is the secret to wellness. And it definitely helps with back pain as well. At this point, we're going to move. We're going to move into the back pain topic. Shreya, Shreya had brought a case from Cashlack that she wanted to to start us off with. All right. So at Cashlack, uh, we have a 53 year old gentleman, construction worker, BMI of 29, past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, depression, presenting with right lower back pain. What What's your approach to this gentle person? Yeah, so I think it, it. My initial approach to any back pain is to develop a framework and and, and some basic demographic pieces of information that help me initially develop my differential diagnosis uh, before I even um, go into the room, and then and then through the history, um, just as we always do, kind of alter or add to that differential diagnosis. So what sort of things in the demographic do do people need to pay attention to? Are there specific age cutoffs that you're talking about? Can you can you elaborate a little bit? Sure. So so in family medicine obviously we deal with with pediatrics as well as adults and in in the adult population um that we tend to think of that 
quote unquote elderly, and I don't, I think we're not supposed to use that term anymore, but um, <laughs> the older patient, um, that certainly they're going to be more at risk for um, certain conditions such as uh, fragility fractures or osteoporotic fractures, um, maybe more malignancy things in that age that older age group. Um, and so age is certainly a, uh, the, one of the big things that I look at. And then gender, um, uh, is also one of the factors. If I can tell from somebody's demographic, what their, uh, occupation is that, that, that can sometimes help as well before I even go into the room, um, to, to start to build that framework and that differential. Cool. So then what about, um, so you you kind of have the demographic already He's 53 year old gentleman, construction worker. What, what then in your history do you want to get from him? Sure. That's where we start talking about the chronicity or onset. So how long has it been there? What were you doing when it happened? Um, where is it? Does it go anywhere? Uh, what makes it worse? What makes it better? Um, those, those kind of features of, uh, is there a descriptor to it? And then the big, the big question, the big set of questions is the red flags, because that's going to totally change how I approach this in terms of my workup and management. Um, and and we, what are those red flags? We talk about progressive neurologic things. So weakness, numbness, tingling, uh, cauda equina type picture with saddle anesthesia or bowel or bladder changes. Um, and then constitutional symptoms. So fevers, chills, night sweats, uh, weight loss, things that may in indicate that this is infectious or malignant or, or some other systemic issue. Chris, something that I've seen personally struggled with, and I've also seen learners struggle with when you're seeing a patient and they might have a little bit of sensory changes they might have a little, maybe a little bit of weakness. Is there a certain like threshold you have that's going to make you jump to an MRI or jump to, because when you're talking about red flags, like just a little bit of numbness or weakness, you know, sometimes you can blow it off. Maybe sometimes you have to take it more seriously. Yeah. And I'm of the camp that any neurologic finding probably uh, warrants some type of additional workup. Um, and the reason is the sooner there's intervention, if there's a true nerve impingement uh, causing either myelopathy or radiculopathy, the, the sooner an intervention occurs, the less likely that, that long-term um, weakness or long-term neuropathic type things may exist. And so, so I, I guess I'm maybe a little bit quicker in the setting of a true neurologic finding. Now, teasing out whether it's a true neurologic finding is sometimes difficult, right? So pain-induced weakness is different than nerve-induced weakness. And, and so that is a little bit of a, of a tougher thing to tease out. But I, but I do feel like if there's, if there's a neurologic finding, whether it's decreased sensation or weakness, uh, that I'm, I'm more likely to move forward with imaging sooner than I would otherwise. All right. So while we're, we're there, what are some other uh, reasons in terms of getting imaging CT versus MRI? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in the setting of the red flags, if if you think that this is something like a malignant um, presentation uh, in somebody with a known cancer or they're having constitutional or B symptoms that may lead you down that road, I would uh, want to image that. Um if it's an acute issue, so in, uh, for example, an osteoporotic patient or someone with a long history of uh, prednisone um, and they have an acute back pain, uh, 
and, and maybe spinal tenderness, that might be a reason to uh, proceed with imaging sooner. Um, again, I think in the setting of, of acute or subacute with no trauma in a, in a younger adult, um, I think we go with the, the current recommendations of waiting six weeks. But if there are those kind of quote unquote red flag symptoms, um, I think it is important that we proceed with the appropriate imaging. For sure. And you mentioned the red red flags. And before I did reading on this, I didn't know there was a such thing called yellow flags or that I even should be like asking about it in my history. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, and I think that, um, like you, this is, or I also was like, oh, yellow flags. I know I'd heard that, but I wouldn't have been able to quote them to you. And, um, uh, so I did have to, to refresh my memory, but the, the yellow flags are, are more psychosocial types of things, um, issues that may potentially prolong, um, people's symptoms, um, or, or cause that, that long-term disability and, and then even potentially work loss or, or decrease in function. So, um, the first one is the belief that back pain is harmful or potentially severely disabling. And so if a patient goes, oh my gosh, I've got back pain, this is going to end my career and I'm going to, you know, be in pain for the rest of my life, that, self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak, may be, may be present. Um, fear of an avoidance of activity or movement. So if somebody comes in and they don't want to get out of bed and they don't even want to stand up from the chair so that I can do my thorough exam, that's a, a yellow flag sign that this may be something that lasts longer. Um, if somebody has a, a tendency towards uh, low mood or uh, withdrawal from social interaction, possibly anxiety, some of those other uh, psychosocial tendencies that may prolong their back pain. And then lastly, if they don't think that treatment is going to work, um, generally it's not going to work. And, and I think so, so the belief that it's, that's, that it's bad and it's going to be potentially disabling avoidance of activity, um, low mood, depression, anxiety, or expectation that our treatment options aren't going to work are all yellow flags for prolonged back pain. And I was not aware of the yellow flags, and I was too lazy to look it up before recording. So uh, I just thank you for teaching me that. But I think intuitively, when I am seeing patients, and I kind of assess that a lot of those things, those yellow flags are there, I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be a tough one. Prognosis, not good. And that's like, you know, so I, I think they make a lot of sense. It's kind of like, it's probably why you, you mentioned, I, I don't remember if it was on air or in pre-recording that that a lot of learners kind of like are like, oh boy, another patient with back pain. I think it's because of these yellow flags because they've they've encountered so many patients that have that belief that they're not going to get better and that there's some pill that's the answer. Absolutely. And, and I think that back pain does get somewhat of a stigma, especially chronic back pain for that very reason. So how do you how do you approach those difficult patients? I'm sorry, I shouldn't call them difficult, but if they have those yellow flag signs in practice, what have you found to be helpful? Yeah, that, that is tough. And, and I think it's that um, going back to the fundamentals of, of doctor-patient relationship and trying to meet them where they are and understanding what their fear is or what that stems from. And, and that's certainly much easier for me to sit here and say than it is to put in practice at times. Um, but, but I do think that it is really that, that connection that you can make to, to let the patient know that you're going to work with them, that there is going to be an answer to help them 
they may not ever get their pain level to zero. They may not ever get back to the exact function that they had prior to the onset of this back pain, but that we're going to work with them to get them as functional as we can and get their pain down to a level where they can enjoy their children or their grandchildren or their hobbies or whatever that is. And I think when they hear that you're going to work with them to get them to a place where they can do those things, it certainly opens that door for um, that relationship. And I just wanted to make a follow-up comment. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, patients, we, we did a, a show a, a couple months back where we talked with an endocrinologist about patients that he sees with fatigue that think they have an endocrine syndrome but don't really have one. And his his method for treating these patients was kind of similar terms, saying, listen, I, I, we, I'm going to investigate and find, try to find out if there's something here that we really need to worry, worry about. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to see you back in a month, and we're going to keep trying to figure out how we can get you better. And just kind of immediately building that relationship is going to help you in the long term because you mentioned placebo and... I mean, part of the reason why a lot of these drugs, when you look at the effect, the absolute effect of these drugs on like a pain scale out of one, one to 10 pain scale or zero to 10 pain scale, a lot of the drugs have like a two point effect or a one and a half point effect. It's because that's talking about placebo. Placebo has a two point effect or a three point effect. And, and if the patient likes you, things are going to work better. So it's a great approach. Yeah. So getting back to our, our case a little bit, walk us through the physical exam um, and kind of if you can point out what would be more, some of the things that are more high yield to do. Sure. So uh, I think going back to the fundamentals of, of musculoskeletal or any exam is, uh, and, and we certainly preach this to our, to our learners, it's inspection, palpation, range of motion, strength and special testing. And, and so for this particular patient, what I would do is I would certainly ask uh, him to, to remove his shirt, uh, to um, expose as much of the, the, the low back and the SI area uh, as he feels comfortable with and um, uh, allow us to really get a good inspection of that. And then palpation, things that I'm looking for. So bony tenderness over the midline spine, uh, muscle spasms in certain areas. Um, is there hypertrophy of a certain muscle group in the low back? Um, are there places outside of the back? So visceral organs. We got to always remember that back pain can be something that's really intra-abdominal or extraperitoneal in terms of the kidneys. So not forgetting that musculoskeletal pain uh, presentations can be something totally not musculoskeletal. After palpation of that, uh, if I don't see anything in particular um, that would be a contraindication to this, I'd then have him go through range of motion with forward flexion, extension, and side bending. Um, strength testing in terms of the glute musculature with the Trendelenburg test. Uh, core musculature, I may have people do bridges or single leg bridges if they're able. So I'm really looking at the strength of the core. Uh, and then special tests. And, and I think that's where uh, trying to differentiate from radicular type pains with exam maneuvers like the straight leg raise or the slump test um, are important. And then the neurologic exam. Uh, it, no back exam is, is complete without a, a motor and sensory of the lower extremities. Chris, I want to go back to some of the physical exam maneuvers. And if you could just briefly describe, I think you mentioned Trendelenburg, and I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. So can you describe how it's done and, and what it's testing for? 
Certainly. So the Trendelenburg test is looking for the strength of the glute musculature. And how we do perform that test is you have the patient uh, standing in front of you facing away. So you're looking at their back and I have them stand on one leg. And if there's weakness of the glute musculature, you'll see a dip of the hips. So the hips should stay symmetrically or parallel to the floor if the glute is strong enough to maintain that one-legged posture. If you see a dipping of, uh, of the hip, there's indication that there's weakness in one of those glute musculature, the leg that they're standing on. You also mentioned, uh, I think it was a slump sign, Yep. Slump test. Yeah. So the slump test is where uh, we have our patients uh, sit in what we would describe as really poor posture. So kind of chin to chest, uh, shoulders rolled forward, um, kind of in a, that slump uh, uh, appearance. And then what we'll do is we'll take one of the legs uh, and we'll straighten that leg. So uh, extended at the knee and extended at the hip. Um, and if that causes uh, tension or pain, then we'll ask them to kind of look up towards the ceiling. So getting in a little bit better posture. And if that relieves the pain, um, that can be indicative of nerve root impingement, um, similar to what you would see with a straight leg test. Do you mind, do you mind going over the straight leg test and any other tests you would do? Say this patient was coming in with a ridiculous pain. Cause I don't think a lot of people do it correctly or have misconceptions of what the straight leg test entails. Yeah, that's that's that is a, a common um, kind of misnomer. Uh, so a straight leg test is as as we teach it is a patient completely supine on a flat bed, um, and then we'll take uh, one leg unilaterally and slowly raise that up to approximately um, if we can get it to sixty degrees, great. Maybe we don't get it that high, forty five degrees. And a true positive straight leg test is a radicular pain past the level of the knee. And so uh, we often hear, oh, yeah, I did a straight leg test and they had pain in their back with that. that inf- that's good information for us to have, but it, that's not a true positive straight leg test because they didn't get a radicular symptom past the level of the knee. Do you know the, the sensitivity or specificity of that test it, it, offhand? Uh, I, I can't quote you the specific value. Um, I can say that they have studied the slump test versus the straight leg test and the slump test is more sensitive and specific, but they're not great. Um, they're, they're really, um, again, we teach it, uh, but it's, but it is certainly not, um, the, neither one of those are an ideal test for nerve impingement. I remember when I was doing my reading on the straight leg test, don't quote me on this, but I think the sensitivity was anywhere around like 85% on average and the specificity was lower, like 50, 60%. The cool thing though that I, I learned was there's something called like the cross straight leg test, which sounds way too acrobatic um, and has actually nothing to do with crossing the straight leg. Um, do you want to go in, into that more, Chris? Sure. And I, and my, I think you're, and correct me if this isn't what you're talking about, but where you actually lift the contralateral leg, uh, to the side that has the radiculopathy. And if they, if they get pain in the original side, so if, for example, they have a right-sided radiculopathy, you do a left-sided straight leg raise and it causes that right-sided radicular pain, um, that that's a positive cross straight leg test. And the specificity of that is really good, not very sensitive. So if it's like absent, it's not going to tell you much. But if it's there, that's a it's a nice indicator that there is nerve impingement. 
So I was like, oh, that's really great. I, and I'm glad I watched a video. I was like, ooh, this, I don't know if my like, we'll <laughs> have my to, patients can do cross leg. <laughs> we'll have to link, link that video in the, in the show notes for, for the audience. Chris, another test that, that I would do, or, cause I, I just press, I press on the spine, then I press on the paraspinal muscles. I press on the kind of the sciatic notch, which is right, sort of you're pressing on their gluteal muscle kind of right between the sacrum and I guess the ilium. And what does that tell you? I, I find a lot of patients are just really tense and tight there. And they're like, yeah, that's the spot where I'm hurting when they have this just kind of nonspecific back pain that they come in with. Yeah, I, I think that really uh, does help broaden our differential, which doesn't always make it our jobs any easier, um, because there's a lot of structures in that area. You have the piriformis muscle, you have the glute musculature, you have the SI joint that maybe is starting to get a little bit of irritation if you're pushing out that far, um, even if you're not directly on the joint, uh, but because of the musculature. And so I, I don't know that it, it narrows anything for me necessarily, um, but it is helpful to know um, if that's their area of, of maximum tenderness and they they don't have any spine tenderness that I'm less likely to think that this is a vertebral body fracture or, or those sorts of things. So I don't know that it necessarily narrows anything for me. Um, but it is an important part to really mash around on all parts of that posterior lumbar spine and, and the glutes. To touch on that a little bit more, uh, you mentioned there's a lot of things in that area and back pain is just a symptom and getting to the root, no, no pun intended, mm-hmm. um, of what's causing it can be, can be important. So, um, how important is it to differentiate where, what exactly is causing it or how do you, do you have any pointers for us in terms of differentiating? Is it the nerve? Is it the muscle? Is it the ligament? Is it the bone? Yeah, and I think you're right. It it is important to differentiate those because the treatment is going to be a little bit different for all of those. If it's a if it's a muscle spasm as identified by a, a palpable mass of muscle that's irritated and unhappy when you push on it, um, going to be more likely to use treatments like muscle relaxers. If it's um, more of just a uh, muscle strain, but there's not a true spasm, um, or it's, or it's an arthritic type picture, I would be more likely to use an NSAID, um, or acetaminophen perhaps. Um, and, and, and so if we can narrow it down to, um, our best guess, so to speak, uh, without imaging, that does help guide my management, uh, options. Chris, I wanted to kind of do a little bit of a recap of what we've talked about so far. We started with demographics. We took a good history. We went through the red and yellow flag signs. And then we started our physical exam, inspection, palpation, palpation range of motion. We we test their strength and we did this a special testing. The the special testing, were those the, like the... Um, the slump test, the straight leg raise, or, or are there other tests that we, we haven't mentioned that, that we need to swing back and, and highlight for the audience? Yeah, no, I think those are the big ones to help differentiate from if a radicular pain. Um, and then if you want to put the neurologic exam, so sensory and, and, and motor into that special test as well. Um, because if there aren't neurologic signs, uh, or symptoms, we have, we have some time that we can, can, use conservative management before we get imaging and before we do anything invasive. Yeah, because I, I think I, I like to try to simplify things as much in, as possible when I'm when I'm approaching 
patients. Um, and then you can always get down into the, like, you know, the more granular stuff, but from a, a big picture, it sounds like we're sort of on physical exam, like, well, first with the history, are we worried that this is something more serious, like a cancer or a fracture or infection? But then once you're on your physical exam, it's kind of like, is this, is this ridiculous or does this seem to be coming kind of from like muscles and bones? Is that, is that too simplified? Is it, do you have another? Like... No, I don't think that's too simplified at all. I think that's exactly right because that'll, that'll guide your imaging decision first and foremost. And then it'll also, um, help guide what type of intervention, whether that's pharmacologic or, or non-pharmacologic. Um, and the, the good news for acute and subacute back pain is most of it gets better. Um, and, and I think you can tell your patients that, and, and that's probably too, regardless of what we as providers do it, um, in generally people are going to get better, um, which is the good news. It's the folks that don't get better, um, with our interventions that then we have to start thinking, uh, about taking that next step and getting some imaging. Do you have like a spiel that you tell your patients in terms of like what to expect with the course, um, that you educate them on every time that someone comes in with acute subacute back pain? Yeah, I, I do try to say, man, I know that this is terrible. This is limiting you from um, doing the things that you love to do. Uh, but the majority of people in your same position are going to get better. We're going to get you to a place where we can get you back and enjoy the things that you want to do. Um, I, I think a, not a lot of times, but sometimes people come in and they're like, ah, oh, doc, I need a pain medicine and, uh, I need, um, a note for work. And I say, well, wait a second, let's, let's take a step back and let's think about some other things that we can use. That's maybe not a pain medicine. And maybe you don't need to be out of work completely. Could we modify what you're doing at work so that you can, um, you know, get back and be kind of who you are, uh, while we treat this, this thing that's really quite bothersome to you. And I think in some way you're like, you're like almost like treating if, if there are any yellow flag symptoms, you're kind of treating any of those and kind of making sure that you're giving them hope and that they're going to, this back pain is going to get better. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Now for this, for this patient, our, our 29 year old male that we were seeing, we did our physical exam. He doesn't have ridiculous symptoms or any red flags. What what might you, what might your treatment regimen look like? What might you tell him on that first visit? Sure. I, I think the first thing is I'm going to tell him, don't be sedentary. Don't try to just go lay in bed. Make sure you, you get up and move around. Um, you could certainly try some superficial heat. Um, I think there's, there's moderate evidence that that can be helpful. Massage. I think if we need to use a medication, depending on whether I find any muscle spasms uh, on exam, uh, if I do find muscle spasms, I'll treat them with a muscle relaxer. Uh, I generally use a generic low-dose muscle relaxer. And then NSAIDs. I think that is kind of my first line. We always joke in sports medicine. We have like, we have uh, NSAIDs, we have injections, and we have physical therapy. And if it does, one of those three things doesn't fix it, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're not smart enough to have many other things. Um, no, but, but all joking aside, I think starting with very simple things. So staying active, keeping moving, using some heat, finding somebody to massage you, whether that's a professional or, or a spouse or somebody that doesn't mind, you know, doing some deep (laughs) tissue massage and then plus or minus medicines. Awesome. 
I, I wanted to uh, add something in that I, uh, it kind of goes towards the yellow flags. I generally, I actually write this out for patients. I say like, we need to make sure that we're optimizing th- your your lifestyle. I, I, so I talk to them about sitting at work. I kind of assess how much they're sitting. Um, so I say, I don't want you sitting all day. You need to get up and take breaks. If you have access to a standing desk, uh, I actually had a standing desk at my last job. I gotta, I have to try to convince my current job to get me a standing desk. Uh, and then the other thing is I say, we got to get you sleeping so your body can heal. Not all day, but you know, at night, get, try to get a, a full, full night's sleep. We, we want activity as tolerated. And then the other thing is like, if they do have mood disorders or these other things that are kind of going to modify their pain and probably give them like yellow flag signs, basically, I just tell them straight up that, you know, if you're depressed, if you're really anxious, if you're dealing with like a lot of things in your life, we have to sort of address those too, because this is all going to feed into your pain. And I find that patients, and I, I tell them the medication is just one piece of this, but we're going to be doing a lot of, you know, we have to do a lot of things and, and over time this is going to get better. Uh, sometimes it works better than others. Um, if you have the patient coming in demanding for narcotics, you know, that's, that's off to a bad start. It's hard to recover from that. Yeah, that, that does make it challenging. Two, two comments. One is if you want um, a doctor's order for a stand-up desk, if that'll help with your uh, new employer, let me know and I can f- um, fax one over to yeah, you. Yeah, that would be Because I think fantastic. they're great. <laughs> we are, we are oh, now best friends. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, and, and yeah the second Ver, thing if is, Veridesk wants to sponsor the show, uh, we would love that because that's uh, oh, yeah. they're they're wonderful. <laughs> Separate, then you'll have a disclosure each yeah, I will. time. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but the second thing is, I think your approach is great, and and laying that out um, at at the very first visit um, about expectations and finding out what are their expectations, and um, so I think that your approach is is textbook, and I and I think that. Um, uh, if if all of your listeners could adopt that, if they're not already doing it, they're going to find that managing back pain um, becomes a lot easier, and 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 patients are getting better and and more satisfied. All right, I'm going to be the difficult person and change the scenario a little bit and say this is someone who um, has really bad reflux or gastritis. Uh, someone with CKD, where NSAIDs are not really your option, maybe an elderly person um, who doesn't have any red flag signs or anything like that, but uh, maybe the side effects of muscle relaxants are not the best option. Do you have any other go-tos? Topicals? Yeah. If, um, so the topicals, it's that's such a hard area um, to get to. But again, the moist heat and the, and the massage may be helpful. I think in those patients, if, you, if we get to the point where it becomes more of a chronic issue, um, some, of the, uh, some of the medications, the SNRIs like duloxetine have, have some indication. In the acute phase, it certainly can try, although acetaminophen doesn't have good evidence and, and, and really the, um, the studies may say there's not an impact. This is where that art of medicine, if you're not going to do harm and they, and they think that they're going to get a little bit better with 500 milligrams of acetaminophen, um, maybe you could use it to see if you can give them some relief. But it does, it does get in a position of difficulty when, when our kind of standard treatment options aren't available because outside of that, we don't have a lot of things. Now, things like yoga, core strengthening, Tai Chi, walking, those, those kind of um, more movement-based things um, do have some evidence that those can be helpful. So trying to get folks to get involved in those activities, I, I think that 
if push comes to shove, some of the more advanced, uh, if we have imaging that shows that something like an injection may be helpful, or uh, if we get to the level of spinal nerve stimulators and some of these other things that are out there, but in that acute or subacute phase in a patient who has contraindications to medicines, I think the more activity-based modalities are, are really our go-to. And are there some, like, I mean, some, some of my patients, you know, they're working two, three jobs. They can't make it to physical therapy sessions. Is there something I can teach them in clinic um, to empower them, some, like, high-yield exercises? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. And I think simply working on um, core strengthening, um, having people just take walks can be helpful. Tai Chi or yoga that they might be able to get online. There are some e- even certain um, social media sites that have lots of videos. And I don't know if I can say that name or not. But uh, sure. like on YouTube, there are uh, like yoga for low back pain. And, and I think you would want to vet some of those. Um, but but I think those kinds of things, I'll often write down um, YouTube sites to say, here's a here's a very low impact yoga uh, that's designed for people with low back pain. Give this a try. And there are studies that show that yoga actually does just as good as uh, physical therapy um, in some patient populations. And so that would be something that somebody could do 10 or 15 minutes at home if they have internet access. I, I was going to bring up the same point because I know that YouTube just has this whole world of like exercise videos on pretty much any topic that you could want. And I've I've started per there's actually a chronic pain video um, by Dr. Claw from Michigan that for fibromyalgia patients I've been prescribing, and I I also tell those same patients try try one of the beginner beginner Tai Chi or yoga videos and and do you know, do what feels good and, and see if, see if you can tolerate that kind of low impact activity. So it's a great resource. I, I think we, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively new that there's such, so much out there. So I think some people might not think to give that to patients, but most patients at this point have access to the internet. Yeah. I, I would say that, uh, a warm shower and, uh, and 10 or 15 minutes of YouTube yoga really can go a long, long way for some of these patients that can't get into more formal therapy. You mentioned that this has been studied, yoga and exercise being effective for, for low back pain. I, and back to like, I think I'm such a stickler on like good counseling and patient education, but I, in terms of how long should I tell them to stick with it um, before they see the effects? Because I often find people come back, they're like, yeah, I tried. And I'm like, well, how long? They're like, oh, like two, three days. And I'm like, yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, that it, it, this is a weeks kind of thing. And, and if people are willing to stick with this for two or three weeks um, and they're not getting improvement, then as we encroach upon that six-week mark of imaging, then we, we do start to kind of open up the, uh, the cabinet, so to speak, and, and start to grab for some of the other options. But, but I, I, certainly I, I ask for that buy-in from my patients for it. Give this a couple weeks before you see um, whether or not it's going to give you any benefit. And and you bring up you bring up the point of the six week the six week mark. Generally, if unless a person is in really severe pain or has a neurologic symptom that I'm tracking, I'm I'm generally going to tell them, listen, this is this will probably resolve within six weeks. Most most of the time it does, but I want to see you back in six weeks. I think if you bring them back too soon, you're going to be in that point where you haven't given enough time time to work and you haven't given your whatever therapies you've tried enough time to work. And I think some people shoot themselves in the foot with that. Yeah. I think six weeks from the onset. Now, 
that being said, if somebody has had six weeks of back pain, but they've tried no interventions, then I certainly wouldn't necessarily <laughs> right. engage them right, right then. Right. Um, but, but I, you, you're absolutely right that you got to give things time to, to improve. But if somebody has had beyond six weeks of back pain and we try some things, I, I might bring them back in that two to four range. Um, so that we can get imaging, especially if there's any concern for for something sinister going on, um, like a malignancy or like a you know a, a compression fracture or some of those other things. And then, of course, going back to those red flags and and screening for those both with history and physical every time I see them back. And if there's any change in the neuro exam, too, right? Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And now I think as a primary care doctor, when I see the patients, it's a little bit different than when I'm being, when, when patients are being referred to me, because oftentimes they've been through that four or six weeks and the primary care physician, um, now is like, okay, this is getting beyond where I feel comfortable. And so when the learners uh, will come spend time with me and they say, wait a second, you're just seeing this person for the first time. Why are you getting imaging? I say, well, yes, but this, this person has been under the care of their primary care physician for X number of weeks. And now we're kind of to that point where we need to make sure we're not missing something else. Chris, to, to change up our, our initial case a little bit, this, this would happen fairly often in the office where you get a patient, they come in, they don't really have red flags but they're just so uncomfortable and they're just like, you, you just feel terrible for them. And you're like, all right, if I send this, this guy or girl out of here with, uh, with, with just yoga, they're, they're not going to do well. <laughs> they're going to be in urgent care t- tonight. So what, what are your go-to medications in that situation? Are you using tramadol or, or do you ever give opiate opioids for, for to those patients? I do everything in my power, uh, not to use opiates. Um, I, I think, uh, high dose NSAIDs in patients who can tolerate them, and I and I always quote a study, and I and I and I think that this is a reasonable study to quote, especially in people who are are asking for opiate based medications. And um, I I remember the drug rep that was carrying this product, the the uh, brand name of this product, but um, diclofenac oral uh, was studied uh, against morphine in uh, post foot amputee, or I, I should say great toe amputees. Uh-huh. And, and morphine was one of the uh, arms and diclo- oral diclofenac was the other arm. And the oral diclofenac did better. And so I can say to my patients, I have a medicine that I think is safer than an opiate that actually tested better in patients that had their toe cut off. And they're like, oh, that sounds great. Let me try it. And so, um, so in that situation, I think using the high-dose NSAIDs in people that are very uncomfortable um, and then a, a muscle relaxer at bedtime to help them get some sleep and then those other activity-based modalities is really where I'll start. If they are demanding narcotics, I say, listen – I, I think narcotics are more dangerous for you than what benefit they're going to provide in this situation. And, and, and hopefully they'll see that it's that I'm caring for them, not trying to be mean or, or evil to them. I wanted to just mention the muscle relaxers just to get a little bit granular. Do you have any favorites? One, one that I, that I've, I spoke about, I already mentioned the fibromyalgia show we did way back with Dr. Claw he was telling me that cyclobenzaprine actually has a lot of properties similar to the TCAs like amitriptyline, and, and he doses that a couple hours before bedtime or with dinner because it's, it's a bit sedating. He doesn't really dose it during the day. 
which muscle relaxants do you commonly reach for? Are there any nuances that are important, like disease specific interactions that we need to look out for? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I like Dr. Claw also use cyclobenzaprine a lot for its sedative properties uh, at bedtime. And um, what I tell people is if you're feeling so miserable during the day that you're not going to get out of bed anyway, um, then you can take another one during the day, but it is going to make you sleepy. So cyclobenzaprine is my number one go-to when I can. In in folks that I'm concerned about the sedative properties, uh, for example, the elderly, I will use tizanidine. And, and you guys probably are, are better at this than I, but the beers list, I think tizanidine is not on the beers list. And so I feel a little bit more comfortable using that in the older population. And and so those are kind of my two major go-tos. The other options are, are generally more expensive and, and there's really not great head-to-head data that says one's better than another. Awesome. I think but just for interest of time, uh, actually, Chris, are you okay on time? Do you have a, a couple more minutes to, to talk a little bit about radiculopathy? Shreya had another case. Absolutely, yeah. If this is, uh, if I'm not being too long-winded. No, you're doing a great job. Your your timings are perfect. Um, so we have a 48-year-old uh, female. She's a nurse. Uh, she's been having intermittent back pain for years. Um, and then she's presenting this time, though, with acute, an acute flare after helping a lift a patient. She's had similar episodes in the past, but this is more severe and it's radiating down her left foot. She tried naproxen, exercises, even some mindful reduction things she found on YouTube without any improvement. She's like, doc, it's unbearable. I can't go to work. So just thinking about radiculopathy specifically, how, how, what's your, is your management different? Um, do we think about it a little bit different than the other kind of nonspecific back pain we talked about earlier? Yeah, so if there are neurologic findings of of muscle weakness or of sensory deficits that um, go along with that radiculopathy, certainly more likely to get imaging um, and and more likely to go to an MRI because again, it, catching that early can be helpful for long term prognosis. If it's if there aren't um, true neurologic findings, I think that. I, I will tend to consider things like gabapentin or pregabalin, but I, I think that we have to be careful with that because of the side effects. But the nerve type pain, I have anecdotally seen people go, oh yeah, that was very helpful for that. Um, and so in the right patient, and I think that there is, I think there's evidence to say that you can see some small reduction in pain, but, but you do have to worry about potentially have the, the side effects of medicines like that. Yeah. And there, there, there was the, this article that, that was in New England Journal very recently, uh, March 2017, looking at pregabalin, which is Lyrica for acute and chronic sciatica. It was a pretty small study, um, and they didn't really see an effect on, on sciatica, which I was disappointed in because I'm like, well, first of all, I thought I had seen patients respond to it, again, anecdotally. And then uh, it's like so. So, what do you do for these patients? Because it's it's really it's really tough. And a lot of a lot of the times, form we've talked about this before in the show. But you, you're forced by the insurance companies to try gabapentin before you go to pregabalin anyway. And both of those have recently been called into question a lot uh, for for their uh, for their efficacy. So it's 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 a tough one to do. Yeah, and I think it's. It, it, when our hands are tied and they've tried everything else, um, I think that's the, the art of medicine is to say, 
okay, it, it, the evidence isn't great or, or says this may not work, but it's certainly better than a surgery or it's potentially better than the risks of a, an injection and some of those things. And, and so I think that's where there are times where we have to to just stray very gently away from the evidence-based medicine right. to, to try those kinds of things. Uh, this is a real basic question, but something that uh, I think is worth mentioning. Sciatica and radiculopathy, are they the same thing? Or is it, uh, do we need to think about them differently? I, I think, um, yeah, that's, that's a very tough question to answer because I think that in some people's mind frameworks, those are the same thing, um, but they're not necessarily the same thing um, because uh, you can you can have radicular symptoms that may not fit in the distribution of the sciatic nerve. And so, and so uh, I think we just oftentimes they're used syn- synonymously, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I don't, I think I might've learned that and lost it somewhere along the way. So I'm going to take something new back. Is that, that's all you've learned tonight. I'm glad Shreya learned one thing. It was like, maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, uh, the, yeah. I awesome. did a lot of reading for this, Matt. <laughs> I wanted to be good. <laughs> no, let's be honest. You're talking to a primary care sports medicine doctor. They can't teach people anything. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. Oh goodness. The holes I dig for myself. You've, you've derailed, <laughs> you've derailed the show. Uh, let's, can we talk about Maybe we've talked a lot of non-invasive therapies. The ACP paper is is great. They they've sort of done all the work for you. Definitely go back and look at the actual studies if you want to d- get under the hood of these things. But the ACP paper talks about non-invasive treatment for acute, subacute, chronic low back pain. So, what about more invasive therapies, Chris? Let's say our patient with radiculopathy. We tried him on a gabapentinoid. It's been a month and they're still having pain, what's your next step there? Does it include imaging and and, and what invasive procedures might you consider first? Yeah, I think at that point I do tend to go forward with imaging and and obviously the MRI gives us the most information about what's happening at the level of the nerve and the level of the discs. If there's a true nerve impingement, uh, I am fairly quick to refer to my interventionalist colleagues uh, for injection. Um, and, and whether that be fluoroscopic guided or CT guided, depending on, on where it is. But, um, I, I do tend to send folks for that if patients are really struggling and we have evidence that in the appropriate distribution of their symptoms, there is a disc that's impinging on a nerve. There, there have been a couple negative trials of the so-called epidural um, steroid injections for uh, for back pain. Is there a way that you differentiate that out? You, you just, you sort of just mentioned the the MRI findings. If it, if the distribution makes sense and there's findings in that person, is there evidence that those people respond better? So yes, I think if you have something that matches up clinically with your imaging that that and the medicine gets placed in the right location, um, those folks are going to do better. There was a, a systematic review um, in the journal that uh, Pain Medicine, and this is from February of, of this year, um, that looked at the uh, effectiveness and the risks and that it does show that these folks do get um, improvement if it's true disc-related pain. Um, and, I, and I think the take-home from that was 
Um, it may be fairly short lived. Now, what does that mean? It, that might be months for some people, which is great if they can then start doing the other modalities that we think help like McKenzie based physical therapy and some of those other things. But in a person who has true disc pathology, I think the evidence would say that there is benefit from the epidural steroid injection. When you say disc pathology, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean? Sure. So if the disc, whether it's a disc bulge or it's um, disc desiccation or whatever, uh, the description that you want to use to to describe that what used to sit nicely in plane with the two vertebral bodies above and below it has now exited that cylinder um, and is impinging upon a, a nerve. Are there also like facet joint injections? Is that something you ever pursue? Yeah, I think um, occasionally if, if somebody doesn't have any disc pathology and their, and their back pain is very localized to their low back, uh, I think just like putting steroid injection in any other joint that's arthritic, people are going to get some benefit from that. There are some studies that look at some of the the nerve stimulators and some of these other kind of more invasive things for things like facet arthropathy that are that are starting to gain some traction. I don't know that the, there's enough data yet to say that this is really going to be something that we should do, but at our institution there are some studies that are ongoing to look at at the effectiveness of this. Are there are there any procedures that just based on the evidence or your experience that we should dissuade our patients from from pursuing? Yeah, I think surgery. Okay. <laughs> um, if if you can avoid a back surgery, uh, you want to try to do that at all costs. And and I think the um, the reasons are many. I mean, the risk of the surgery itself, but but the fact that people who ultimately have back surgery, it, it, unless there are no other options, really the outcomes are not great. And and people um, then have uh, the potential for other complications and that sort of thing. So I would, I would at all costs try to avoid getting people into the operating room. And I'm sure some of my spinal surgeon colleagues don't want me to say this uh, live to millions of listeners. But, yeah. Um, yeah, millions. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I do think that it's, it's a, it's, if you can avoid it, uh, I try to convince my patients, you do not want to have a back surgery. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I've been in many situations as a primary care provider where patients, for whatever reason, they saw the surgeon and they're like, but doc, you're my primary care doctor. I trust you. What are, what are your thoughts? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I've only seen bad things in the ICU from this. Um, <laughs> and so thank you for kind of giving me your two cents and framework for it. Absolutely. Any, Shreya, do you, I think it's about time that we should be wrapping up. We've been talking for a little while now. Uh, most of, most of my questions have been answered. Anything else you can think of that we're missing here? Yeah, just one more thing. I, you know, I learn a lot from mistakes or, or near misses as, as they call it. Are there any other common pitfalls that providers make in treating back pain that we didn't mention? We, we went over a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I, I think the big one is the use of narcotics and 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 the push as as you guys well know to get away from that class of medications for things that we don't have great evidence that it helps. Um, and then the other one that I see sometimes is the use of uh, prednisone or, or oral corticosteroids um, when people come in with acute back pain and there's not great evidence for that um, really in any. Uh, case, but especially in cases without any ridiculous symptoms. And so those are the two things that I, that I see from um, either, 
you know, residents coming in and asking me, hey, can we do this? Or folks that follow up with me from other outside providers. So I would say avoiding those two things and then just making sure that you're asking about the non-musculoskeletal causes, kind of the scary things like malignancy, infection, or visceral causes of back pain. Excellent. And at this point, I'd like to ask for your take-home points. Okay. So I guess my take-home points are, I'm going to echo what I just said. Make sure you're taking a good history. Uh, make sure you're asking about those red flag symptoms, constitutional signs, etc. Do an exam, sticking with the fundamentals of inspection, palpation, range of mission, uh, special tests, neurologic exam. And then when you decide whether or not you need imaging, make sure that the back pain has been present for six weeks or more. And if you decide to treat it, uh, non-pharmacologic treatment options should be your first go-to. If you're going to use a pharmacologic agent, I would recommend NSAIDs and muscle relaxers. And then ultimately, if someone does have red flag symptoms or neurologic deficits, uh, imaging and quick referral is probably appropriate. I think that's it. I think great summary. And we thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute honor uh, to be a part of the Curbsiders group. I, uh, I am humbled to be uh, invited to do something that, that reaches so many people. You were great. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, and, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicioso. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, apps, or jump ropes mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to be on our mailing list and receive a PDF copy of our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Please continue to send your emails to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We want to hear your feedback. It helps us make the show better. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And this is Dr. Shreya Paresh Trivedi. Yes. Strong. And And this this has been a really long episode, but it's been a long and windy road, and it was hard to come back from. But now that's all done, I'm doing just fine. (laughs) Oh, and this is uh, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and good night. Hey. Yeah, I'm still Paul Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, Paul. Sorry, Paul. Paul.